Well, we've been working through this uh, book of Jude, and uh, last week uh, we looked at verses up to, up to verse 12, and so tonight we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16, hopefully. So let's open a word of prayer and, and uh, just praise the Lord for our worship. And Father, we thank you for allowing us to gather here tonight. Lord, we uh, thank you for each one that's come out and has been committed to our studies on Wednesday nights. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to allow your word to uh, build our hearts up, edify us as believers. And Lord, we pray that tonight that you would, um, you know the needs that walked into this room tonight. Only you, you do, really. Um, we can't see people's hearts, what's going on inside, but you can. And so, Lord, we know that uh, nobody's here by accident. And Father, we pray that our message tonight would be one that is um, honoring to you and also uh, edifying to us as believers. And if there's any here tonight who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that they would be drawn to the Savior as only you can do, that you would show them their need of a Savior. And so we thank you for your goodness to us and your grace, and we ask you to bless our time together in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So look at Jude, and uh, we want to read verses 14 through 16. Now remember, up to this point, he's pointed out that people have crept into the church, these false heretical teachers, and he's compared them to a bunch of different things that we've been studying. But tonight he really comes to a section of, of the scripture here that points out that um, they are headed for uh, disaster. They are headed for destruction. They are headed for judgment. And he says in verse 14, Jude writes, it was also about these who, these false teachers, these people that do not teach correctly the Word of God or have rebelled against the Word of God, these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then in verse 16 he describes a little bit about their characteristics. He says, these are grumblers. Uh, ESV says, malcontents. Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism. Why do they do all this? To gain advantage. To gain advantage. This is the judgment that is going to come on these people who Jude says... Right there, we, we read it earlier back in, in the earlier verses of Jude that these people have crept in unaware, unnoticed. So these are people that are within this church and apparently are being tolerated by those within the church. They're tolerated in the midst of Christians. And uh, God does not want us to be tolerant of someone who does not stand for the truth of the Word of God. You're not being kind to them by tolerating them. It's, it's much better to risk offending them and pointing out the way of their error. Maybe they won't talk to you anymore, but at least you've done your due diligence. And it's interesting, as we've been going through Jude, and once again, as we've been going through 2 Thessalonians, I don't know if you've noticed this, but these studies just dovetail. And sometimes, to be honest with you, I get mixed up. I'm like, wait, am I teaching on 2 Thessalonians or am I teaching on Jude? Because they're basically saying the same thing. They're saying, hey, you know what? Judgment is coming. And I don't know why God has us teaching on this. I mean, I could have picked a different book on Wednesday night that would have been a little more joyful or whatever, but this is where we ended up. And in all honesty, when we first started Jude, I mean, I'd read through it, but I wasn't that familiar with it. But the more I studied, I thought, 
you know, we started this in the late fall, and I thought, well, I'll have this wrapped up by Christmas. <laughs> was I wrong? Right? I mean, every verse, you got to unpack it. You got to, what does this mean? What does that mean? And so I appreciate your patience as we go through this. But God does not want us to tolerate people who are not genuine and truthful with the Word of God. And that's his point here in verses 14 to 16. This is why God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had Jude record these words, even for us today. Uh, and the, it says here at the, at the very beginning, it tells us that it was also about these, these people who were, he just, we just got done studying for several weeks, these false teachers, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and now we have to explain this, and he prophesied, okay, and it tells us what he said. He says, behold, the Lord comes, and this is kind of the threefold message here. First of all, his message as a prophet was, the Lord is coming. You better prepare your hearts because the Lord will be here. He didn't know when, but he will be here. And then he says he's not coming by himself. What's he say? He says he's coming with 10,000 of his holy ones. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. And then he gives us the purpose of why he's coming. And it says in verse 15, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness. I mean, just look at how many times the word ungodly in its different forms shows up in these verses over and over and over again. There's a theme here. God will judge ungodliness. You're not going to get away with it. And so he wants us to understand last week in verses 8 to 11, we were looking at the, the characteristics of those who deceive. And he talked about them in, in a very different illustrations. He was talking to them about um, seedless uh, uh, clouds, hidden reefs. He talked, he talked to them about um, uh, waterless clouds, uh, seedless trees, fruitless trees, in the autumn twice dead, he says, uprooted. He talked to him about the wild waves he compared them to, wandering stars, and we studied all that. You can get the message from that. And that, that were the characteristics. That's how you can spot someone who is not an authentic, genuine, truthful representative of God's Word. But he goes on in verses 14 to 16, and here he, he doesn't just realize the characteristics of those who deceive. He, he says, basically, he wants these folks to remember what happened to some other people who lived in the same way, ungodliness ruled the earth. Uh, he wants them to remember the condemnation of the scriptures upon these people and people of this like, uh, of this nature. And so, first of all, we have to deal with this, this verse here, verse 14, that tells us about Enoch, this, this prophet. Uh, and this really reminds us of what happened to the generation before the flood. That's how far back the Holy Spirit is using Jude to bring up to these people's memory. Don't forget what happened before the flood. They thought they were going to get away with everything too. And guess what? They didn't, right? And so he, he points that out in verse uh, 14. So first of all, what is this prophecy of Enoch? Um, it says that he's the seventh generation from Adam. He's pretty clear about that. And if you look in your Bibles back there, you can see it in the genealogy. He is the seventh from Adam. And um, Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that Enoch prophesied. And you can say, well, where is it at in the Old Testament? Point, point, Steve, in the Old Testament where Enoch prophesies. I can't, because it's not there. And some people say, well, but if the Holy Spirit, under the, uh, Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said Enoch prophesied this, guess what? He prophesied it. <laughs> okay, because this is the Word of God. It's not going to lie. It's not going to lead us astray. And so Enoch did say this even though it's not recorded in the Old Testament. And there's other things that are, that are not recorded in Scriptures uh, that is quoted in the New Testament. Other phrases. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's some that, uh, that, that, that people kind of repeated, but they're not inspired Scripture. But they are in the Word of God. 
And so Enoch here, this, pro, this, pro, pro, uh, this prophet is a guy that's from the line of Adam. He's the seventh from Adam, so pretty early on in the history of the world. Now there's another Enoch who was the son of Cain. Okay, that's mentioned in Genesis 4. That's not this guy. Okay, this is a di- that's a different one. This is actually the seventh from Adam. You have Adam, Seth, Enish, Canaan, uh, Mahaliel, Jared, and then Enoch. That's the Enoch we're talking about. Okay, and if you go to um, Genesis chapter 5, you can see them spread out there. There's seven of them. And it says um, in verse 24 of, of, of Genesis 5 that Enoch walked with God... And he was not. He walked with God, and he was not. Now, think about this for a second. This is an individual who went for a walk with God and never came back. That's pretty intense. Okay? And when we, when we look at this, it's, it's, it's very important. It says that God took him. That God took him. In other words, this is one of the only individuals in the scriptures. There's one other one, and he is who? Elisha, right? Elisha, that, that, that walked, that, that kind of got taken up in a, a carriage ride to heaven. He didn't die either. But Enoch didn't die. God took him off the face of the earth. He took a walk with God one day and walked right into eternity. I don't know about you, but that would be pretty cool, right? So being that the, the fact... Um, this was a very special individual. And, and those of, the, the, of Israel, the Jews of the day, thought very highly of this guy. I mean, this guy walked with God and he just went to heaven. Uh, pretty incredible. And so here he is, the seventh one from, from Adam in the genealogy. And you can, you can look it up for yourself and count them out there. So this is a real, real character. But there's no mention of him prophesying anything. But because Jude tells us that he did, by faith we're going to say, well, yeah, he did. And he said exactly what Jude in the New Testament tells us that he said. And it's, it's very um, interesting to note also that Enoch is the first prophecy, his prophecy, as Jude tells us about, is the first prophecy anywhere in Scripture it's the first one given by man, a man. The first one. That's, that's a pretty special place. That You're the prophet. You're the first prophet that God ever spoke through in a prophetic way. There's another prophecy, prophecy earlier than Genesis um, 5 when it talks about Enoch and things, but that's in Genesis chapter 3, and that prophecy was a prophecy about the seed of the woman that I think Kai mentioned uh, several weeks ago when he was teaching, who bruises the serpent's head. But guess what? That wasn't given by man. That was given by who? God. <laughs> right? God said this is going to happen. So this is the first prophecy, this prophecy of Enoch, was the first one that was given through a man. And guess what it concerned? It didn't concern the salvation of man. It didn't concern, you know, all the blessings of salvation. It concerned what? The judgment of the Lord. Wow. Um, and so it's a very serious thing when we talk about these things. And by the way, the last prophecy recorded in Scripture, you can go all the way to the end of the Bible, all the way to the end. It's from Genesis all the way to the end. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, it says this. This is the Apostle John recording this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So think about it. The first prophecy given by a man in the Bible is about the coming Christ and his judgment. And the last prophecy mentioned, given through a man, is about what? About Christ and his coming judgment. So there's something here about this, right? From beginning to end, all through the middle parts of the Scripture, you read about, you hear about the prophecies about God coming in judgment. In the Old Testament, it was, of course, it's God coming in judgment, and it becomes clear clearly in the New Testament 
when it speaks of Christ because God the Father has delegated this judgment to his Son. And so when Jesus returns, remember, he's not coming back as the Savior. He's coming back as what? As a judge. Okay, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And so he's coming in judgment. It says he's the seventh one, Enoch, this this. This prophet is the seventh one in the genealogy from Adam. And uh, you say, well, how does Jude know this? I mean, if he can't go to the Old Testament and say, oh, yeah, here's where Enoch said this prophecy, how does he come up with this? Is he just making it up? No, remember, this, this, the, the, the writers of the New Testament were inspired by what? Not the pizza they ate the night before. Right? I mean, they didn't wake up one morning and go, oh, I think I'll write a book. Yeah, I'll call it the letter Jude. You know, let's start writing. No, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, the New Testament tells us, that these men were carried along by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they recorded the very word of God as he uh, gave it to them in divine revelation. And you say, well, does that happen today? No, it doesn't. And this is where we have to be very, very careful. Right? How many times have we said, and we've all done this. Yeah, you know, it's like the Lord told me the other day. Well, did he really? You mean he came down and had a conversation with you? Because that would be divine revelation, right? I mean, if I came in on a Sunday morning and said, hey, yeah, I was shaving this morning, and the Lord gave me this message. It was amazing. He appeared in the mirror, and I just I wrote it all down. What would we do? We would add another book to the Bible, the book of Stephanus, and put it in the back, right? And say, hey, this was divine revelation. No, we wouldn't do that. Why? Because the canon is what? Closed. Right? God uses his word to speak to our hearts, the recorded word, but no longer is he in the business of giving out divine revelation. See, and this is where these false teachers um, take advantage of people. Because they can make up whatever they want. And then they say, well, no, this is under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I have a new doctrine, I have this, I have that, and they come up with all kinds of crazy things that we'll be looking into in the coming weeks. Some of the doctrines they proclaim are totally opposite of what the Scripture says. You say, well, how do they get around that? Well, this is a new truth. That's their whole platform. You know, if you get holy like me, then you can receive new truth too. And, and we'll all be in agreement then. So how does Jude know about this? Well, the one answer is the Lord revealed it to him, clearly. It came from the inspiration, and we, we know that. Um, but with all of these things that he's talking about judgment, I mean, why would the Holy Spirit give him some obscure guy, Enoch, who's never recorded anything in the Old Testament per se? Why would he bring this up this way? Well, you have to do a little historical background on Enoch, on some writings, uh, 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 writings that weren't included in the scriptures, let's say it that way. And there's actually two books in, in Jewish history. One is the book of Enoch, number one. And guess what? The book of Enoch, number two. <laughs> he has two books attributed to his name. Now, he didn't write those books. They just thought so highly of this guy, they took some traditions of the day and things like that, one of them being this prophecy, and they actually put it in those books. It's not included in Scripture. It's not Scripture. And so he had two books that bore his name. And both the Jews and others would give it kind of a, a historical book. It's kind of a, a commentary on the hero Enoch to show respect to him. And so they had various different literary units that they would put together and, and they would honor somebody with. But, you know, this 400-year period between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God was silent. He didn't say anything. There's just 400 years of silence there. They would take these units of historical literary prose and put them together, and they pulled them together, and they gave them the book first and second in it. And they're part of history, and they're part of the oral tradition, and um, 
they actually found part of the book of Enoch. They actually have a piece of it, like a, uh, an old um, piece of it, and it's, it's, it's authenticated. So it actually was a book that people would pass around and read for historical purposes. It wasn't ever included in the scripture. It wasn't ever thought to be scripture. They never worshipped it in any way. It was just a historical book. And so um, they have one-third of the book of Enoch number one in the Greek language today. It also exists in the Ethiopian Ethiopic form and also in the Latin form and the Aramaic form. They have different pieces of it. And so they've translated this, this book, um, mostly about Jewish history and tradition. And so obviously the people knew about it during the day. And the reason we know that it was familiar to Jude's readers, guess what? He doesn't explain what he's talking about. He doesn't even, he doesn't, oh, Enoch, you know, you remember that prophet? He doesn't even go into it. So they were that familiar with it. It would be like us bringing up, you know, well, you know, in the Constitution it says, I don't think any of you would say, what's a Constitution? You wouldn't know. I wouldn't have to explain it to you, right? Well, that's the same thing with this book. That's how familiar it was to them. And amazingly, the, the prophecy of Enoch made before the flood, made before the flood, divinely survived the flood, parts of the book at least. And it made it into oral tradition. It wound up in this book. And because there was so much evidence about um, this, they didn't even question it. And so um, they didn't even worry about it. But there is a, a, a translation English translation of, of part of this book from the Ethiopic version, and it goes like this, Behold, he will arrive with 10 million of his holy ones in order to execute judgment on all. He will destroy the wicked ones and censure all flesh on account of everything they have done, that which the sinners and the wicked ones committed against him. That's actually text out of this old historical book. That's not scripture. We wouldn't include it in scripture. But we do have fragments of this today. So it's kind of fascinating when you look into it that here's Jude bringing something up and it's like, what is he talking about? Well, there's an explanation for it. Historically and biblically, there's an explanation for it. And so what's, what's interesting about all this is th these are not books that were written by Enoch. They were written in honor of Enoch and they're kind of a apocryphal book, you could say. Uh, those of you of the Catholic faith, you know that before between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what's in there? What's it called? The Apocrypha, right? They, they include certain books in their Bible that as Protestants we say, well, they're not Scripture. They're not divinely inspired Scripture. They weren't included in the canon. The, the Catholic Church kind of brought them in there to support things like praying for the dead and different things that, that are not biblical, basically. Okay, it's not, it's just a hist history books. And because they wanted to make points with some of their odd theology, they could find them in those books. So they said, well, that's part of scripture too. And so they put them in there. That's why in the Catholic Bible, you have these books in between. Now, you're never going to really read it per se. I mean, you can read it. It's not, you know, you're not, it's not uh, horrible to read it. It's mostly history. If you like history, you can read it. But it's not inspired scripture. We have to make that clear. Um, it's, it's not an inspired book. Now, when it comes to the book of Enoch, it kind of falls into that genre. It's, it's, it's an apocryphal book. There are some things that are written in the book of Enoch that are very accurate, like this prophecy. Okay, But there are also a lot of things that aren't. <laughs> There's a lot of things that don't line up with scripture that were just mere traditions of, the, 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 of Israel at the time, and they put them in those books. And, you know, you can find a lot of verses that go against what's in the book of First and Second Enoch. But this prophecy was recorded in there. Um, the Jews never accepted it as inspired. They never had it in the canon of the Old Testament. You won't talk to a Jew, and they say, oh, yeah, we, you know, we read the book of First Enoch in the Old Testament. It's not there. They didn't include it in there for a reason. Um, the Roman Catholic Church didn't even include it in their Apocrypha. I mean, that's how kind of aberrant some of the teachings are in there. Um, 
So it was never viewed as scripture. And, and by the time Jude wrote, think about it, the canon of the Old Testament was what? It was closed. Right? It was, it was closed. It was done. They weren't still um, recording the Old Testament when, when Jude wrote this book. Uh, it was closed, you could say, 400 years before all this. And that's why, like in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter writes about Paul, and he writes about all these letters and all the stuff. And, and then he says, and the rest of the Scriptures. He just kind of throws that in there. Peter, then the rest of the Scriptures. And it's the very statement that Paul and his writing goes along with the Scriptures indicates that Peter had a sense of this canon of the Old Testament being closed. It's not still added to. And that's what we would believe today. We believe the canon of Scripture is closed. So this first, second Enoch, they're not inspired, um, and it's, it's, but it gives an accurate rendering of this prophecy that's actually recorded here in Jude. And the people knew about it. They were very well versed in it because he doesn't even explain it to them. He says, well, hey, just, you know what, about these guys, just think about Enoch and, and the seventh guy from Adam and what he prophesied. And he said this. Nobody questioned him, nothing. They just said, yeah, yeah, I remember that book. They probably studied it. Um, and Jude never calls it uh, scripture or anything like that. He doesn't um, say here, you know, it is written, thus saith, you know, he just says, no, the, remember Enoch prophesied saying, and it was, you know, the Lord speaking through that prophet at the time. So when, he, when you come back to Jude and you look at this verse, well, what does he say? He says, behold, the ESV, in my estimation, kind of has a poor rendering of the word here. He says, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. Uh, the New American Standard would be, I would say, a more correct translation, and it, it basically records it accurately because it's in the aorist tense, and it's, it suggests that it should say, Behold, the Lord came. Behold, the Lord came. So Enoch is prophesying, and he's prophesying about the Lord coming, Okay, and, and some commentators say, well, he was so convinced in his vision and in so startling and all this stuff that he just said it as if the judgment had already happened, that he wasn't necessarily looking forward. Um, there's different ideas on that. But others believe that, hey, he's pointing out what happened before the flood. What happened before the flood? And that's really what I kind of have a sense he's talking about because he's saying, hey, they didn't get away with it way back then in Genesis. They're not going to get away with it in your day either. And they're not going to get away with it today either. Okay, God will come in judgment against them. As a matter of fact, uh, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, if you turn over there real quick, we'll just read this quickly, but it kind of points this out. Um, it talks a little bit about this, this judgment that happened Back during that time, it says in verse 1 of 2 Peter 3, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up. I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So he's reminding them of something. Well, what is it? That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, there you go, and the commandment of the Lord and the Savior through the apostles. And then he says this in verse 3, knowing this first of all, well, what are we supposed to know, Peter? That scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. What are they going to be scoffing about? They're, they're going to be following their own sinful desires. Wow, that's just what we read out of Jude, isn't it? The same thing almost. Almost the same words. He says, following their, their sinful desires. And then he says this, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? In other words, you've been saying this for years. He's coming back. Yeah, 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 right. They, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since, look, the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This is how blind these people are. They think, no, it's just everything's going to get better. It's just all better. <laughs> you know, just forget the bad stuff. You know, it's kind of like our federal government. We don't want to talk about bad stuff. You know, we don't, we don't want to talk about that. We, everything's fine. The economy's fine. Everybody's doing great. You know, and if you say it enough, maybe they think people will start to believe it, even though they're barely making it. Okay? Well, it's the same thing back then. 
All right. And you have these people saying, oh, you know, God, he's not going to come and judge anything. And then look at what he does. He, he points out to them. He says in verse uh, five, for they deliberately overlooked this fact. What's the fact, Peter? That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the, the word of God. They overlooked the fact that, you know what, God created this. This isn't something they did. This isn't something that just popped into existence through evolution. No, God created this. And then he says this in verse 6, and that by means of these, the world that then existed, this evil, ungodly generation before the flood, was deluged with water and perished. So Peter's pointing back. He's saying, hey, even today, people say, oh, God had never come back. Hey, don't, don't think it didn't happen. Don't forget what happened. You know, remember when 9-11 happened? Remember how that just rocked our world here in the United States? I mean, it, it just changed everything. It changed the way you travel, the way everything, everything just changed like overnight. And yet you talk to people today, younger people, 9-11, what's that? They have no idea, no clue. It, it's sad. Well, this is what's going on here. They're, they're just totally blown away that the Peter is just saying, how could you forget this? The world existed, God created, and then he destroyed it. And everybody perished. Verse 7, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. In other words, it's going to happen again, but not with water. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. What's he saying? God transcends time. Just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, praise God for his patience. This is what he points out in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is what? Patient toward you. Thank God he hasn't come back yet, even though the Christians are praying for it. Thank God he hasn't. Why do I say that? I have some relatives that I'd want to see come Christ before the Lord comes back. Thank God for his patience. Thank God for his patience that he didn't come back before you committed your life to Christ. Right? Why is he patient toward you? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Some people wrongly teach, well, this means everybody's going to be saved. What are you worrying about? No, it doesn't mean that at all. He's saying God is patient toward you. Who's he writing to? Believers. Not wishing that any should perish, because they're not going to perish. If God has elected you before the foundation of the world, you will be saved. But that all should come, should reach repentance. This is not God's sovereign will. This isn't something he's declared. This is something he desires. God doesn't want to see unbelievers go to hell. These are individuals that he created. But unless they come to Christ for forgiveness of their sins, that's where they will end up, justly. But then he says in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. Some people say, oh, that's a nuclear holocaust. Could be. Or it could be simply, I mean, do you know why everything is held together today? Exactly. Colossians tells us that. He holds everything together. I mean, think about it. Have you ever thought about it? I mean, you go down to the minutest, you know, you get to the, the neutrons and all this stuff. You get right down there to nothing. Everything is flying around, right, like this. I mean, if you, if you pick something up, a rock on the end of a string, and you start swinging around, what's it do? It wants to go out, right? Why can't it? Because you're holding on to it. And if you spin it fast enough and hard enough, and then you let it go, what, what happens? That thing flies, right? It's like a slingshot. Well, the Bible says, why, why aren't all these little molecules and atoms and everything just going, because Christ is holding them together. He's holding them together, literally. And one day it says he will let go. And it'd be far worse than a nuclear disaster. 
I mean, it could be akin to that, but it's going to be far worse than that. It says it's going to happen, pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. So what's he say? He said the Lord came once back in Genesis. This was Enoch's prophecy. And don't think he's not coming again. (laughs) You know, he came in judgment before. He deluged the whole earth because of their ungodliness. He's talking about a judgment here, I believe, in Jude, that has already come. And he's letting us know that, hey, don't, don't think. Just because, you know, it hasn't happened yet. Remember what happened to the generation before the flood. They lived in wickedness and they were judged. They were wicked, they were deceptive. And Enoch prophesied. Well, when did he do that? It's not recorded in the Old Testament. Well, how do we know he did it? Because Jude says so. <laughs> Jude's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would not lie to us. And he said exactly what the prophecy says here. Some people say, well, you know, he's coming with thousands of his holy ones. That's referring to Christians. This is referring to the second coming. If you study the Old Testament, holy ones always, always refer to angels. Always. And, and God brought his host of angels and brought a judgment in the world, a worldwide flood, according to verse 15. They're executed judgment on all and convicted all of their ungodly ways, and he destroyed that world. Now, I think I mentioned this to you before. I was trying to remember if I did it on Sunday or Wednesday. I can't remember, but and some of you heard this. But remember Enoch's son. He had a son, and his name was what? Methuselah. Okay. Um, if you grew up in Sunday school, you know Methuselah was the oldest man, right? 969 years old. Well, his name in Hebrew means this. When he dies, it shall come. That's what Methuselah means. When he dies, it shall come. And if you're into studying your Bible, you can go back and you can count up the years of, of all these, these individuals that go to the first son and the, the, the first year mentioned his lifetime and everything, and just keep on going through that process, and you're going to discover something very fascinating. The year that Methuselah died, some said he died around 1656, whatever, um, you know, the year he died is the exact same year that the universal flood came. God used him as an indicator, as a warning. He was the, the father of Lamech, the grandfather of Noah. Noah was born in the year 1056. He was 600 years when the flood, 600 years old when the flood came. And the Bible says that Enoch prophesied. That means people in the next day like our day today, who continue to compromise. That's what was going on before the flood. They were compromising with sin, you remember. And there was sin, there was immorality. Uh, the Bible says everyone did what was right in their own heart. Um, they were not without a voice. Some people look at the flood and they say, well, that's not fair. They didn't know. Oh, yes, they did. Because Enoch prophesied. And it's recorded right here for us. He was there to tell them that God is going to bring a judgment against this world and what's going on here. And he even named his son as a constant reminder to the generation. You know what? This kid's name's Methuselah. When he dies, and God was very patient, wasn't he? 969 years. When he dies, it shall come. And some believe that the year Methuselah died, God brought that universal flood on the face of the earth. So it reminds us, first of all, of what happened to that generation before the flood. Secondly, it reveals what will happen to all the ungodly. Look at verse 15, Jude 15. It says, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. How many people in Noah's day were, we wouldn't call them Christians, but were followers of God, were believers? How many? Of of the entire population of the world? 
Eight. Eight. That's it. That's how bad it was. Think about that. The entire world consisted of eight believers. Today we could say today, wow, there's only eight Christians left. In the population of the world, only eight? Yep. Think about that. Noah, his three sons, and their wives. That's all there was. And what did God tell them to do? Get in that ark. And what did they do? They got in the ark, did what God told them to do, and guess what? They were saved. They were saved. What happened to everyone else? Everyone else was judged by God. Everyone else mocked Noah. This idiot's building this boat. What's he building a boat for? He says it's supposed to rain. What is rain? They, yeah, they understand. You say, well, why were they judged? The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. Here's what it says. Genesis 6, 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. Sounds a little bit like our society today, I would say. Verse 12, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That's verse 11 and 12. In Genesis 6, 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think about that. They, they had no good thoughts, just evil, rampant evilness, continually, it says. In verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. He looked at this and thought, what are they doing? I created this beautiful world for them to live in, and look at what's going on. There's eight people down there that have any respect for me at all. Only eight. So the Lord said in verse 7, Genesis 6, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creepy things, and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made him. I always say I love the buts in Scripture. Verse 8, but Noah. But Noah. What about Noah? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Well, what's, what's Jude's point in all this? His point, basically, he's trying to communicate to these believers that, you know what, these people have crept in, and you're, you're kind of rubbing elbows with them. You're not doing anything about it. You're kind of tolerating it. And his point is, it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter who these individuals are, no matter what age they even live in. And he gives them an example of ages ago that this happened. And he says, this, 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 a scenario is always going to end the same way. You're not going to come out on the winning side against a holy God. No matter what age you live in, God will not tolerate sin continually. He can't. He will not do it. He's going to bring judgment. And so he's warning these Christians that guess what? Just like God won't tolerate sin, you, you call yourselves Christians? Well, guess what? You should not tolerate sin either in your own life. He makes it very personal. That's his point. And by kind of hobsnobbing and rubbing elbows with these false teachers within their congregations and around their love feasts and all that, oh, come on in, you know, yeah. Don't do that. That's his point. That's not honoring to Christ. And so he wants... First of all, to un us to understand that we need to deal with this, this prophecy. But secondly here, he, he describes the patterns that they follow. Look at what he says there in verse 16. He describes the pattern. Remember the condemnation on the, of the Scripture on these people, but he also wants us to remember the pat patterns which they follow. He says, these are... Grumblers. He begins to explain who they are so we can better understand who they are. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Here's the basic way Jude says you can recognize somebody who is a spiritual deceiver, someone who's not being honest with the Word of God. Unfortunately, 
as believers, I'll say it this way, sometimes even as Christians, we manifest these same things, do we not? Anybody here ever grumble? Just ask my wife. You know, she's telling me all the time, you know, old man, you know, just always grumbling about this, grumbling about that. We all grumble at times, okay? This is a little different here because there's, there's malice involved in their grumbling, you could say that. Uh, you know, sometimes as believers, we take on the lifestyle of the world and that dishonors Christ. And usually, well, always the Holy Spirit convicts us and we confess that and, and we don't want any part of that. Right? We want to live for Christ. We want to be the salt, the light. We want to do everything that Christ told us to do. That's, that's our sole purpose on earth, to, to, to bring honor and glory to Christ, to live in a way that's honoring to Him. But look at their motivations here. What are their motivations, their personal motivations? It says they're grumbling, grumblers. Um, when you grumble, when a person grumbles, what, is, it, is it complaining well, yeah, it is. I guess I would, I would define it kind of as complaining under your breath. <laughs> Nothing's really coming out of your mouth. It's more of a heart issue, really. Um, it, it, it has the idea of dissatisfaction. You're dissatisfied with somebody's words or deeds. And it, you condemn that, that, that person, um, whoever it may be. Nobody hears you doing it, but in your mind, you're doing it. Um, well, these people grumble about everything. You know, it's not just, oh, it's so hot. You know, no, you know, it's not cold enough. It's not, they're just always complaining, always grumbling. It's never, you know, I'm satisfied with, with what I see before me. No, they're always grumbling about things. And we all complain at times, but not to this degree, hopefully. Sometimes we get into the problem of grumbling too much and then Somebody finds out we're a Christian, and wow, it's kind of an eye-opening experience, right? You're a Christian? Wow, just change your attitude. What are you doing, right? And, and so you, you need to be cognizant of that fact that we can fall into this, but this is something they do continually. They grumble. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us a little bit about the danger of grumbling. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul records in verse 9 to 11 uh, about putting Christ to the test. He, he writes this. He says, in, in verse 9, he says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Remember that story in the Old Testament? They were whining, complaining. God said, okay, had enough. Verse 10, Nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction." So God is using the plight of these people who, who grumbled in the Old Testament as an example for us not to do this. Uh, I mean, do you think it's possible for us to get into a state of mind where we're grumbling, we're dissatisfied, we're whatever, and, and as a result of that, it limits God's productivity in our lives? It limits our ability to be used for him because, because our life has become a grumbling mess. We, we just grumble and complain about everything. Okay, God, God's not going to use somebody like that. It's going to be very hard for him to use somebody like that. Um, that's characteristic behavior of an unbeliever, by the way. That's not normal behavior for a Christian. Uh, if you want to know what the normal behavior for a, a Christian is, read a book like uh, Philippians. Right? We call that the book of joy. In spite of all the persecution Paul was going through, in spite of being in prison unjustly, all this stuff, his heart was filled with joy. Why? Because he knew how the story ended. You know, we, sometimes we get so focused on the news and so focused on our circumstances, you know, we hear people say that all the time, right? You, you ask somebody, how are you doing? Ah, doing all right under the circumstances. We say that all the time. And I always want to say, why are you under your circumstances? Why would you be there? That doesn't make any sense for a Christian. We don't want to end up there. 
So why, what's the motivation here? Why is he doing this? Why is he grumbling? Why is he finding fault with everyone? Well, the answer is clear. It tells us in the verse there in Jude, it says they're following their own sinful desires. <laughs> they're doing what comes naturally. These are people who are not believers. These are people who have crept into a group of believers, but they're not believers. And so they're grumbling, they're whining, they're, they're carrying out Actions that are characteristic of someone who is not transformed by the blood of Christ, who has not come to Christ. They, their life is still stuck in sin. And it's interesting, in the original language, when it says following their own sinful desires, it carries the idea that they can never be satisfied. It doesn't matter how much you try to console them, how much you try to get them over their grumbling, they can never be satisfied. They just want to grumble about everything continually. So their personal motivations, they're motivated in a wrong way. Secondly, look at their manipulations. It, it describes them as being uh, uh, loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And it also says they're, that they're malcontents. That basically means that they're they're, they're perpetually dissatisfied, is what I just said. They're loudmouth boasters. I like that language. Um, these, these are patterns that are not patterns that should be exemplary of a Christian life. This is someone who would speak arrogantly, uh, flattering people. Why do they do this? To take advantage of them. This is their whole point. Um, literally, it says that their mouth speaks of grandiose or humongous things, like things you could not even conceive of. They're speaking of just like, oh, yeah, this has happened in my life all the time. And you see that in, in, in false teachers on their platforms. You, you see them, they... they, they they make it sound like they're the only one in the room that has any relationship with God. And if you just give them the money that somehow you can have the advantage of knowing God too. And the blessing will spill off of their lives and touch you by chance. Because after all, they're the anointed ones. Um, and they set themselves up like that. And the whole purpose they do that, the motivation is to take advantage of people. I mean, this is hard to believe, but this is what the Word of God says. This big mouths, or loud mouth boasters, uh, stoma in the original Greek, it, it means that they're pompously, pompously puffed up by themselves. It's not somebody else coming along and puffing them up. They're, they're puffing themselves up. Uh, one commentary says, within a sophisticated religious vocabulary, vocabulary that had an external spiritual tone and attractiveness, but was void of spiritual truth and substance. Think about some of the false teachers we have around today. This is exactly what they do. They boast themselves up. They puff themselves up. And it also says they're flatterers. They show favoritism to gain advantage. That's what a flatterer does. Literally, it means to admire faces, to show partiality for the sake of material benefits. You know, when someone comes up and starts telling you all these nice things, we all think it, okay, <laughs> what do they want? You know, this is where we go. And not that everybody does that, and it's not, that's probably a wrong thing on our part, but that's where we go, that's where we end up, because a lot of times, that's what people do. They, they flatter you. They want to paint a picture of something that's not true so that you will, uh, you will give in to their, what they want. You know, and, and this can happen in, in a, a lot of different forms. I've talked to people who literally have nothing. They're on the street, they're homeless, and they approach you and they want something from you. And what do they do? They flatter you. They try to get something from you, and they, they begin to flatter you. They begin to tell you their story. And they're doing it to gain an advantage. I'm not saying we shouldn't help homeless people. 
I mean, you know, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's what's at the root of the matter there. And so today we have to stop and we have to say, wow, if, if this is how these people look, and this is the patterns that they use, and, and the, remember, these are not people outside of the church, my friends. These are people that have come inside the church. They've crept in unnoticed, and everybody thinks everything's fine. And it's not. I want to share with you, just as we close here, you know, when we think of the judgment of God and we think of hell and we think of being there for all of eternity, uh, that should put um, some fear in our heart. Should it not? Um, remember the the, the TV show uh, Fear Factor? I don't know if it's still on or not. We don't need a fear factor, okay, to give us false fear about these scenarios these people put themselves in. Uh, we don't need artificial fears today. We need to be fearful of legitimate things. Instead of people dealing with artificial fears, traumatizing them, themselves and contrive different experiences and things like that. They need to understand what true fear is when they come before a holy God for his judgment. That's what we're, we're really, we should be fearful of. Um, John MacArthur in one of his messages pointed out this. He said, there are four things that are necessary for a person to be saved. Four things. And this is quick, but it's, it's so essential that you hear this. He calls it the science of salvation. <laughs> Okay. And he says the first thing that you have to have in order to be saved is what? Fear. You have to have fear. Now think about this. You have to, you know, if, if, if you're going to be saved, you have to be saved from something, right? Or someone. Today we don't have the necessary fear in people's hearts. People are not fearful of God. They're not fearful of judgment. Why? Because people don't tell them about God's judgment. Think about it. Even when we share salvation with somebody, do we talk about God's judgment? A lot of times we talk about God's forgiveness. We talk about God's love, how much God loves them, and his graciousness, and we go all that, all positive, positive, positive. Keep it positive. But we don't set it up. We don't set it up with fear. Why, why is it a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God? Because he's holy, and he will carry out his judgment. I mean, you have to be saved from something. Well, what do you have to be saved from? You have to be saved from hell. That should be a very legitimate concern on people's hearts. I don't think people would want to be saved from their sin if they could have their sin and still go to heaven. Because they love their sin. If they can have both, why can't you have both? If I can have my sin and still go to heaven, that sounds like a good deal. What is there to be fearful of then? But when you stop and you think about hell, spending eternity in a place of torment, that's, that's a whole other level of fear. And I don't think we do our evangelism properly. I don't think we prepare people's hearts to hear the goodness of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. We don't prepare their hearts for that. We jump right into that. You know, Bill, wrote, Bill Bright wrote a track. Um, uh, God has a wonderful plan for your life. The four spiritual laws. That's the first law. God has a wonderful plan for your life. And I remember even as a brand new Christian reading that going, but what if the person doesn't come to Christ? The plan is not very good for that person. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it wonderful then, right? But he kind of left out the judgment part of it. And so we have to, we have to include that. Um, we have to prepare their hearts. We have to prepare the hearts of our children to hear the gospel. So many times our children are groomed on, on the love and the graciousness and the mercy of God. And, and that's all they know. Nobody ever talks to them about the judgment of God or the horribleness of their sin before a holy God. So the first one he says is fear. Secondly, the second thing you have to have to be saved is not only fear, but you have to have humility. You have to have humility. And you know, the scriptures point that out. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, 
Um, you not only have to have a fear of eternal hell, but you have to have an understanding that you can do nothing in and of yourself to rescue yourself from that. That's where humility comes from. It says in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead. When's the last time you saw a dead person do anything? If they're genuinely dead. I've never been to a funeral where the dead person got up and walked away, ever. I've done a lot of funerals. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked. He's talking to Christians. You were once this way, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. He even includes himself. Hey, we've all been there. We've all done this, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. Legitimately so. Like the rest of mankind. This was written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. And he's saying, I was under the wrath of God too one day. At one point, we all are. And like I said, I love these buts of Scripture, verse 4. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Isn't that interesting? Here we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We can't do anything for God to like us. We can't do anything because we're dead. And yet it says, he poured out his love, his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. That's when he made us alive together with Christ. And then it says this, by your good works you've been saved. Does it say that? No. By all the stuff you do for, for all the... No. By grace you have been saved, it says very clearly, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ so that at the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then the verses that we all know, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. It's not a result. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. There's not going to be anybody standing in heaven saying, hey, look at me, man. Yeah, I got here, you know, I, I, I fed the homeless and I gave to the church and I got baptized and I joined this church. And I... No, no. No one's going to be boasting in heaven how they got there. Because it's not a result of our own works. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. We have to humble ourselves. We not only have to have a fear of God, but we have to have humility in our lives. We have to deny ourselves. We have to realize that we are utterly unworthy. There's nothing in us that God could look at. We are completely bankrupt of righteousness. That's why we need the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The third element is repentance, he says. You've come to a place where we're standing, as it were, looking into the yawning mouth of hell, fearing that you will spend forever there. Understand that you can do nothing to change that. Understand that your utter wretchedness and sinfulness and unworthiness, and then you come to the point where you say, you know what? I don't want this. <laughs> I want to be saved from this. I want you to forgive my sins. I want to acknowledge my sins. Where does that happen? It happens in the heart. God has to do that work. You can't make someone repent. We tell people to repent all the time, but it's a work of God. God grants us repentance, the Bible says, when we acknowledge our sins. And then the last thing that you need, not only the fear, not only humility, not only repentance, but the last thing is you need to believe the gospel. You need to believe the gospel of Christ. You need to believe that Jesus died for your sins. You need to cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's nothing I can do about my sin. I'm going to hell. I don't want to go to hell. God, save me. That's what needs to be communicated from your heart to his. And guess what? He'll answer that prayer. He'll transform you. He'll forgive your sins. He'll fill you with the Holy Spirit. He'll, he'll, he'll give you wisdom in ways that you could never even fathom. And this book that he left for us will come alive. It will jump off the pages to you. You won't be able to put it down. You'll have an insatiable 
a desire to read it and to study it. Because that's what a Christian does. That's what a Christian is. This is what has to happen. Fear, humility, repentance, and believe the gospel. Unfortunately, in our evangelism, where do we start? We start with believe. <laughs> wow, don't you want to believe in Jesus? I told that to somebody one time, and the person said, why? I, I, I have hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. I don't need your God. Walked away. What can I say to that? I mean, you know, nothing. <laughs> See, we, we need to get the order right. We need to prepare our hearts and ask the Lord to really um, help us communicate that. Not only as he communicates it to us, but as we communicate the gospel to others. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us a desire to share your truth with others in a way that is bold, that's not ashamed. And um, Lord, I pray that you would use us through the power of your Holy Spirit to communicate the truth of the gospel to those who have yet to hear and come to Christ. Father, we thank you for this place in which we meet. And Lord, if there's any here tonight who's struggling, their heart is pondering the truth of what they're hearing, Lord, I pray that you would do that work, that you, you're the only one that can do it. We can't save anybody. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to communicate the message of the gospel, to communicate how holy you are and, and the grief that you bear because of our sin and, and all those messages. But Father, we can't transform a human heart. Only you can do that. And so we call on you tonight to do that. Open people's eyes. Help them to see their need of a Savior. Help them to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.